0: gesture? It's going straight at you. (laughs) On May 25th, 1961, President John F. Kennedy issued an appeal that would forever change the course of our nation's history. He challenged America to land a man on the moon before the turn of the decade. The National Aeronautics and Space Administration, which we know very well here in Houston as NASA, took this mission to heart and began steadfastly forging ahead through the creation of the Apollo program. After numerous years of equipment creation and failure and testing and correction, Apollo 11 took off from Kennedy Space Center on July 16th, 1969, and four days later on July 20th, American astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin became the first men to ever land on the moon. With over half a billion people watching On television, Armstrong stepped down off the ladder to the lunar module and he famously proclaimed, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. There are certain events in the history of a people that mark them forever. The moon landing of 1969 was one such event for the people of America. And you can look back on the history of our nation and recognize other momentous occasions such as the bombing of Pearl Harbor or the delivery of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech during the 1963 Civil Rights March on Washington, the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision, the terrorist attacks of 9-11, All of these events, for better or worse, both the tragedies and the triumphs, have left an indelible mark on the American people. They were turning points, which shifted the course of our nation. As we continue today in the study of the book of Numbers, we come to one such turning point in the history of the Israelites, a tragedy of such vast proportion that the people of God would lament it for generations to come. And although we can't go back and rewrite history, events such as these demand our attention. They provide us with important opportunities to look closely and inspect the mistakes of those who came before us, all in the hope that we would learn from their failures instead of forging ahead with our own. So with that as our mindset, let's begin in Numbers chapter 13, verse 1, where God has finally and at last brought his people right up to the border of the promised land. 13.1, the Lord spoke to Moses, send men to scout out the land of Canaan I am giving to the Israelites. So the first thing that I want to do is consider these first two verses of chapter 13 in context. And in order to do that, we have to think briefly back at the events that have come immediately before this. So in chapter 10, we saw the people set out from the base of Mount Sinai for the first time, and they began their journey toward the land of promise. In chapter 11, we saw them rebel against the plan of God. Also in chapter 11, we saw them rebel against the provision of God. In chapter 12, we saw Marian and Aaron rebel against the mediator of God. Yet even still, 13 opens with the Lord instructing, send men to scout out the land of Canaan that I am giving the Israelites. So we can't just simply breeze past that verse without pausing to recognize the mercy and the faithfulness of God right there. In the face of the repeated rebellions of his people and their subsequent judgment, the Lord is still leading his people to the land. Why? Because he had promised to give it. And the fact that despite their recent setbacks, he is still leading the people to the land tells us something very important It tells us that they didn't have to perfectly follow him in order to possess his promises. The Lord was perfectly prepared to leave an imperfect people to the place of his promise. He was perfectly prepared to lead a people who were struggling with their faith, who were fighting against doubt, and who were wrestling with their sin. This is a very good and a very necessary reminder for us God's call upon our lives as we follow after him is not perfection it is however persistent however imperfectly we must persistently pursue the promises of God as we follow him starting in verse 17, Moses provided the scouts with details of their mission. They were to perform reconnaissance of the land and then bring back a report of what they found. And I think it's very important for us to note that the scouts weren't going to discover anything that the Lord didn't want them to find. Can we agree about that? He, he wants... He wanted them to see everything that they saw. He wanted them to see the abundance of the land. He wanted them to see the strength of its inhabitants. He wanted them to see the might of the cities that they had to conquer. But he had already provided them with the lens through which they were to understand all these things. And it was the lens of God's set. That was the grid through which they were to view everything. Everything that they saw about the land and how they were to process everything that they experienced when they were there. And God had said that He was going to give them the land. And we see that assurance from God emphasized several times throughout the beginning of chapter 13. First of all, it's emphasized very explicitly because in verse 2, He says to Moses, This is the land that I am going to give to the Israelites but we also see it implicitly emphasized through the text attention to a place called Hebron. Now, if you were with us for our study of Genesis, that place might ring a bell. It's a place of great significance in the history of God's people. It was near the place of Hebron, where God first promised Abraham that one day he was to inherit the land of Canaan. There are several just really beautiful interactions recorded in Genesis that take place between the Lord and Abraham, and this is one of them in Genesis 13. The Lord said to Abram, Look from the place where you are, look north and south and east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all of the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that anyone could count the dust of the earth and your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and its width, for I will give it to you based on that promise that the lord gave to abraham many years later he purchased a burial plot in the place of hebron for his wife sarah and when abraham did that he was metaphorically placing a stake in the ground it was a symbol of his belief and the promises that god had made him that that one day his descendants would possess that land Abraham was buried next to his wife in Hebron, their son Isaac was buried there as well, and his son Joseph, Jacob was also buried in Hebron. So the writer of this account knew those things, and that is why the place of Hebron is emphasized in the text. The scouts who went to the land knew these things, and the Israelites would have known those things as well. God had promised to give them the land. It was theirs for the taking. Verse 26, the men went back to Moses, Aaron, and the entire Israelite community in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back a report for them and the whole community, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They reported to Moses, we went into the land where you sent us. Indeed, it is a land flowing with milk and honey, and here are some of its fruit. However, the people living in the land are strong. And the cities are large and fortified. We also saw the descendants of Anak there. The the Amalekites are living in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. So it's really interesting what happens here. I did a search of the term milk and honey in the Bible app. And this is what I found. Every single time the Lord described the land of Canaan to the Israelites as a land flowing with milk and honey, he also, in the very same breath, mentions to them the inhabitants of the land who are already there. Every single time. So I have all of them on the screen for your reference, but I'm going to read just one of them to you. This is from Exodus 3.8. God says, and I had come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So you notice that in the scouts report that they bring back from the land of Canaan, they confirm that the land is just as God told them, a land flowing with milk and honey but instead of recognizing that the presence of the people in the land to be further confirmation of god's knowledge and his promises they instead view the presence of the people of the land to be an insurmountable obstacle to their entry they say yes The land is just as God told us. It is indeed an abundant land. It is even flowing with milk and honey. But there are people there, and they're bigger than us and stronger. Like that whole last part came as a complete surprise to them, as if God hadn't repeatedly already told them of these things. But don't we do the same thing very often? Don't we pick the parts of God's word that are appealing to us, and then we somehow just manage to neglect the rest of it? But that is a very dangerous practice, because half-truths have a way of growing into full lies. It's one of the reasons why I find the prosperity gospel to be so particularly insidious. Because the spies... Felled to rightly recognize, because they had hitched themselves to only half the truth, the spies failed to rightly recognize the sovereignty of God over the situation, and then they bought fully into the whole lie that they could not conquer the land. Verse 30, then Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, let's go up now and take possession of the land because we can certainly conquer it. So Caleb had seen the exact same thing that the other spies had seen, but because he had attended carefully to the whole truth of what God said, he was able to rightly recognize the presence of the people of the land to be further confirmation of God's sovereignty, and it made his belief and his faith that they could conquer it even stronger. Verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him responded, we can't attack the people because they are stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land that they had scouted. So that term negative report in verse 32 is translated as evil or false report in some of the other Bible translations. The original word there is a word that is always associated with negativity, with falsehood, and with strife. So what happens is that the scouts end up giving an exaggerated interpretation of the dangers that they saw in the land in order to sway the public opinion. And it worked. Something I want you to notice what's going on here is that when you possess the whole truth, like we see Caleb presenting, he had no need to exaggerate the details or to overstate his case. But when all you have is a half-truth, It demands that you do those things. So as we come to the end of chapter 13, the people have been faced with two diametrically opposed options. Caleb's we can, or the scout's we can't. But only one of these aligned with the whole truth of what God had said. So what are the Israelites going to do? 14.1 Then the whole community broke into loud cries, and the people wept that night. All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron, and the whole community told them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if we had died in the wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Our wives and children will become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. As we move into chapter 14, we see that the entire community gets just completely swept up in the drama of the scouts' report, and their immediate knee-jerk reaction is to assume defeat. There is an absolute lack of consideration, given the report that the scouts brought back, that they even stood a chance. And what I find so crazy about the whole thing is that the Lord wasn't even asking them to believe anything that he hadn't already proved to them, that he hadn't already shown them. In the book of Deuteronomy, in Moses' retelling of this account, Moses says this, Then I said to you, do not be terrified and do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for us as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in a fire by night, which they saw, and in a cloud by day, which they saw. So Moses' point here is that they had seen with their own eyes what the Lord had done, and yet despite everything that the Lord had showed this people, their knowledge of him was still lacking. Psalm 95 says this, For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. The Israelites still did not know the Lord, and it was not because of a lack of revelation on his part. Most of you are probably familiar with that verse in 2 Corinthians that says that we are to walk by faith, not by sight. And it's true that as followers of Christ, we are to walk primarily by our sense of faith. But I want you to consider for a few minutes how that has worked itself out in the story of the Israelites so far. Because God didn't require the Israelites to demonstrate faith until he had already proven himself to be faithful. So he first moved on their behalfs in ways that they could tangibly experience, in ways that they could actually see, right? He, he destroyed their enemies in Egypt through the 10 plagues. He parted the Red Sea and he led them straight through it. And then he led them via the visible sign of the cloud and the fire, And so then the sight of what he had done should have transitioned into this growing faith, a deep and abiding belief in in what he says, a confidence in, in who he says that he is and what he will do on their behalf. And then that faith over time is to grow into their primary sense, even so much that it can replace someone's sight so that they're not any longer so dependent upon the things that they see with their eyes, tall walls, fortified cities, big people, but with what they know to be true about God, he is mighty, he is strong, and he is for us. But somewhere along the way, this process in the Israelites had been stunted by their persistent disbelief. And that disbelief, that unbelief, was the root sin of their rebellion. It was their unbelief that produced their complaints in chapter 11, their criticism in chapter 12, the negative report of the land in chapter 13, and their refusal to enter into the place of God's promise in chapter 14. Matthew Henry said that unbelief is a sin that has its own punishment for those who do not trust God are continually troubling themselves. And haven't we seen very sadly that to be absolutely the case in the Israelites? I bet that some of us, most of us, have found that to be absolutely true in the moments when we felt trust and have faith in our God as well. Verse 5, then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly of the Israelite community. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Japunah, who were among those who scouted out the land, tore their clothes. And they said to the entire Israelite community, the land we passed through and explored is an extremely good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord, and don't be afraid of the people of the land, for we will devour them. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. So we see Caleb and Joshua do a couple of really important things here. First, we see them reminding the Israelites to fear the right thing. That was something that Christy picked up on last week as well. They say, you don't need to be afraid of the people of the land. What you should be fearful of is what's going to happen if you rebel against the Lord. And then we also see Caleb and Joshua attempting to reorient the Israelites to the whole truth of what God had said. They rightly remembered that the Lord had always told them that their conquest of Canaan was going to be a military endeavor. Do you remember that first week of study, all of the reading where he was organizing them as an army? He had taken every opportunity to prepare the Israelites for the inevitability of this upcoming battle. And he had even previously given them some insight into who the primary actor in this battle was going to be. And it was him. In Exodus 23, God had told them, I will cause the people ahead of you to feel terror and will throw into confusion all the nations you come to. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you and retreat. I will send hornets in front of you, and they will drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hithites away from you. So God had provided the Israelites with detailed knowledge of how he was going to go before them into the land and weaken the inhabitants so that they could come in and conquer it. Yet even so, the Israelites have hardened their hearts in disbelief. Verse 10, while the whole community threatened to stone them, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the Israelites at the tent of the meeting. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people despise me? How long will they not trust me despite all of the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them with a plague and I will destroy them, that I will make you into a greater and mightier nation than they are. So those of you who may be familiar um, with the biblical narrative, this uh, proposal of the Lord to uh, destroy his people and start again with a faithful few should sound somewhat familiar. In Genesis 6, we're given the account of the flood, and most of you are familiar with how that story goes. God commands Moses to build the ark, and then the floodwaters come, and they keep coming, and they keep rising, so that eventually every living creature that is not safely closed in on the ark perishes. So one of the main differences between the account of the flood in Genesis chapter 6 and the account of the Israelites in Numbers 14 is that the Israelites have an intercessor who steps in on their behalf. Verse 13, But Moses replied to the Lord, The Egyptians will hear about it, for by your strength you brought up this people from them. They will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people and how you, Lord, are seen face to face. And your cloud stands over them and how you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. If you kill this people with a single blow, the nations that have heard of your fame will declare, since the Lord wasn't able to bring this people into the land he swore to give them, he has slaughtered them in the wilderness. So now may my Lord's power be magnified, just as you have spoken. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity to the children, to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people in keeping with the greatness of your faithful love, just as you have forgiven them from Egypt until now. So one of the things that I hope that you notice is that in Moses' intercession for the people, he appeals to the very characteristics of the Lord that the people were doubting. His faithfulness, his goodness, his power, and his promises. And then Moses asked the Lord to pardon the people, not because the people are deserving of God's pardon, but but because through the pardon of his people, the Lord will be glorified. The purpose of mankind is to glorify God. That is the reason for which every single one of us has been created. So what I want you to notice is that back in Exodus, we saw that it was through the destruction of God's enemies and the enemies of the people of God through which God was glorified then. But here in Numbers, we see that it is through the pardon of his people which the Lord is glorified. And so that is what the Lord does. Verse 20, the Lord responded, I have pardoned them as you requested. Yet as I live and as the whole earth is filled with the Lord's glory, none of the men who have seen my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness and had tested me these ten times and did not obey me will ever see the land I swore to give their ancestors. None of those who have despised me will see it. So those whose sight of what the Lord had done never produced faith would never see the land of the Lord's promise. God's sentencing of the people continues on through verse 38. God had pardoned them as Moses had requested him, but the Lord's pardoning of his people did not mean that they would not be punished. It did mean, however, that God would remain faithful to the covenant that he had made with them. So the punishment of the people was, like we saw at Kibroth-Hatava and at Hazaroth, directly related to the words of the people involved. They said back in 14.2, if only we had died in the wilderness, and then four times the Lord tells them, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. They asked in 14.3, well, wouldn't it be better if we just went back to Egypt and Lord sends them back in the direction of the Red Sea, back toward the land of Egypt, the place of their former enslavement. They feared that their children would become plunder and prey in the land of the Canaanites, but instead the children fall prey to the iniquities of their parents. Those children would wander the wilderness for 40 years as they faced the consequences of their parents' rebellion. And then they would go in to possess the very land that their parents despised. And then the Canaanite people would fall prey to them. So an immediate confirmation of these judgments... All of the scouts who persisted in their unbelief and who encouraged the other Israelites to do the same thing died in a plague, and Joshua and Caleb were spared. It was their faith that saved them. I don't want us to naively believe that uh, Caleb and Joshua just happened to be the two most optimistic spies in the bunch. I think it's very realistic for us to assume that Caleb and Joshua had to actively fight and intentionally stand firm against that very same temptation that the other scouts succumbed to. And the New Testament tells us that we have to do the same thing. Right? The New Testament tells us that we are to fight the good fight of faith, that we are to contend earnestly for the faith, that we are to take up the shield of faith, and that we are to stand firm in the faith. That's a lot of verbing. Those are a lot of action words that we're supposed to take. Faith was and will always be an animated endeavor. It is a gift that the Lord gives that we must actively take hold of. Verse 39, when Moses reported these words to the Israelites, the people were overcome with grief. They got up early the next morning and went up to the ridge of the hill country, saying, let's go to the place that the Lord promised, for we were wrong. But Moses responded, why are you going against the Lord's command? It won't succeed. Don't go, because the Lord is not among you, and you will be defeated by your enemies. There is no such thing as cheap repentance. In the book of Matthew, Jesus tells the Sadducees and the Pharisees to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. To do the things that prove that you have actually turned toward God and that you have changed the way that you think and that you act. But we see no evidence of true repentance of the Israelites here. They weep and they cry and they mourn all night, but then they wake up in the morning and they are still unwilling to submit to the Lord's correction of them. I also thought it was very interesting that here we have a reversal of what we saw earlier. So in chapter 13, at the end of chapter 13, we had Caleb's We Can and that scouts, we can't. And then here at the end of 14, we have Moses's. we can't, and the, scou- and the Israelites' we can. So in each and every situation, we have to look around, we have to assess what's going on, and then we have to fully align ourselves with the whole truth of what God has said. We can if God says we can, and we can't if God says we can't. Verse 44, but they dared to go up the ridge of the hill country, even though the ark of the Lord's covenant and Moses did not leave the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that part of the hill country came down, attacked them, and routed them as far as Hormah. So I think that there's something in us that just bucks against any type of correction, Right? I have gotten angry and indignant every single time I have received a speeding ticket, even though every single time I have received a speeding ticket, it has been because I was indeed speeding. I think that this is something that we have to fight against. I think it's a temptation that we have to fight against. If you don't hear anything else today, I want you to hear this, because our response to the discipline of the Lord is vitally important. Proverbs 311 tells us, do not reject the discipline of the Lord. The only proper response to the discipline of the Lord is repentance and humble acceptance. The Bible provides us with a picture of this sort of response to the discipline of the Lord uh, through way of David. Uh, We have recorded in the Bible David's response to the discipline of the Lord after his affair with Bathsheba. And if it's not a story that you're familiar with, it is brutal. It's heartbreaking. The short version is that david takes the wife of his friend has sex with her she gets pregnant and then to cover up his shame and his guilt he has her husband again his friend killed in the line of duty and as part of the discipline that the lord gave david for that david suffers the loss of the son who was conceived through that affair brutal right It was not a light judgment, and I have no doubt that it was extremely difficult to bear. And yet even so, Psalm 51 is the record of David's response to the Lord following this judgment. And I'm going to read part of it. If we had more time, I would read all of it. But I can tell you, ladies, that it is one of the most well-worn pages in my Bible. I encourage all of you to go home and spend some time with it today. David wrote be gracious to me God according to your faithful love according to your abundant compassion blot out my rebellion completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me against you you alone I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so you are right when you pass sentence, and you are blameless when you judge. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. That is the heart of true repentance. And that is how we are to respond to the Lord in his judgment, and in his discipline of us. And women, I can assure you that when we respond rightly to the discipline of the Lord, he does not waste it. He can take your worst mistake and your darkest day and your lowest point and use it for his glory and for your good. In fact, he promises that he will do just that. Hebrews 12.11 says that the Lord's discipline will in time yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. But women, we must allow ourselves to be trained by it. Winston Churchill famously said that those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. I believe that it is a very good and it is a very right thing for us to read and study this section of Scripture and lament all of the many ways in which the Israelites went wrong. I believe that it is so helpful for us as a people to look back and closely consider all of the events that have formed us and shaped us but as we do I offer you this one caution it's very easy for us to read and study Numbers chapter 13 and 14 and place ourselves in the roles of the heroes but this record was not kept for a group of women who have the proclivity to go the way of Joshua and Caleb This account was recorded for a group of women who have a tendency to go the way of the Israelites. So as we end today, I would like us to allow ourselves to be instructed and guided by the Lord through a reading of a portion of Hebrews chapter three. This is yet another New Testament text which directly refers to this event in the book of Numbers as a means through which to edify and correct and strengthen those of us who follow Christ today. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God but encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the assurance that which we had from the start. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Father,